Welcome to the Human Conversation Podcast with Jules White, the real dragon slayer, author and entrepreneur sales coach. Tune in weekly for human conversation about business and sales. Enjoy business expert interviews, educational episodes and virtual cuppers with entrepreneur business owners. So grab yourself a cuppa and enjoy. Here is your host, Jules White. So welcome everybody to the Human Conversation. Oh my goodness, I love making this podcast so much. And tonight I have another amazing guest, but this lady is really inspirational. I was desperate to have her on the podcast. I'm so happy she's here tonight. We're going to have an amazing chat together. So she is Holly Matthews. So for the listeners, here's who she is. She's a former TV actress. Now I know you're getting very excited already just on that one. She's a self-development coach. She is a speaker and I must say a fantastic speaker because I've heard her speak about three times now. And she's also the founder of the Happy Me Project. Holly, welcome to the Human Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very excited. I love the title of the podcast as well. I love the name. Thank you. And obviously people who know me know that my brand is kind of live it, love it, sell it. That's what everything I do is live it, love it, sell it. But when I started the podcast, I was really desperate to tie it in to my whole philosophy about connection and sales, which is yeah. the human conversation. So here we are. <laughs> and it works perfectly. I love it. I think it's great. Thank you, darling. Thank you. First question. When Holly Matthews wanted to leave school, what did she want to do? Be an actress. So I started acting when I was 11. So I was already working. So there was, in my mind at that time, absolutely nothing else. There was nothing else. Like I was, I mean, I was working on a TV program at the time, a children's TV show called Biker Grove. And um, for UK listeners, they may know it further afield, may not. Um, but it was, so all of my grown up was, was on television is this, you know, the only awkward stage mine was on television. And so when I left, I left with that knowledge that there was a bigger picture for me. My mom likes to brag about this, which is hilarious, <laughs> but I did a BTEC in performing arts. So when I say to people, I think, you know, I, I'm a, like uni dropper my mum bless her heart is still very happy that I got that b-tech in performing arts it's not it's a b-tech I, I don't know what I would ever do with that to be honest I don't know where that's going to take me but I went to college but even though I you know did that kind of route a little bit it was I don't really know why I did it ever because a year into college I signed to Sony as a singer so I just, I always knew there was a bigger picture. And actually that was something that got me through school. It got me through everything. Cause I just knew that this wasn't my reality forever. Yeah. That's really interesting, isn't it? You know, so many, if you ask so many people, even when they left school, they didn't know what they wanted to do, Holly. And yet here you are, you were already doing this from when you were 11, if not even younger is certainly in your mind, yeah. you know? I think it's the funny thing because I just think it was, you know, when we're young and this is why it's so important to talk to our children and to, you know, to influence them to, and allow them to just be and to try things and not to stifle their creativity because they're braver than us. And at that age, I, I remember when I, I started, I mean, I started doing like Saturday drama classes and, you know, little local clubs when I was about 
think about seven or eight. But even then, I, I don't I don't know where it came from, to be honest. My dad was a welder and my mum worked in a bank, so I don't know where it actually came from. But I I still had this sort of sense of wanting more and a bigger picture. And when I started the first class that I started, they were it was a very small outfit that they would you know the very small acting class and there was a bigger one in the city center in newcastle called the time theater and i knew that they did lambda exams and and so for me that lambda was a drama school and i had heard that proper actors went to drama school so even at that really young age i asked if i could change to that one because in my mind goodness knows where i heard it but I just decided, I would tell people from like 10, 10 years old that I was going to go to RADA, that I was going to go to the, the, big, the biggest drama school in the UK, that I would leave, I would, that's where I was heading. And then I was going to go to Hollywood and do a film with Steven Spielberg. So that was, and at that age, you know, you don't have the social stuff that we put on top and all that doubt. And, you know, and I was lucky actually that my parents, even though they, you know, we had humble beginnings and they did, you know, they didn't have, they didn't have any knowledge in that area. They were both very supportive and they just always told me to dream big and to be whatever I wanted. When I got the part on Biker Grove, it's weird because everybody else was probably quite surprised that I was on TV. I wasn't, it, wasn't, it you know, wasn't an ego thing. I was a child. I just didn't have any doubt. Why would I? You know, why yeah. would I not get on TV? That was what I wanted to do. You know, at that age, you just don't have anything else. Whereas when we get older, we we start to doubt ourselves, don't um, we? We start to think, you know, we can't do all this stuff. I love how your parents supported you as well, because my parents supported me in that same way. Yeah, and great. I think, you know, we are incredibly lucky that we had that, aren't we? You know, and I, I am very oh grateful. Yeah, yeah, very grateful. No, I, I really do credit them because, you know, they could very easily, and, and my dad particularly, my dad, um, only I say particularly because he went from absolutely nothing leaving school you know being told in fact I remember a conversation he'd had where he was told um do you want to work with your hands or do you want to sit behind a desk and where he was from everybody worked with their hands it was you know Newcastle was a very very you know industrial city and um so he was like well I don't know just work with my hands and so he ended up you know laboring and doing all the traditional male roles and actually he said when I was born it was my mom had got a degree. She had went back and done the, and actually done the more corporate route. And then she'd got a degree and he found that so inspiring that he thought he would try to do something. And he went back to a local college and did a, a maths class and, and whatever. And then, you know, my dad, I sat with him, not well, at new year and he's got a massive big house. I mean, we didn't have any of this when I was growing up, by the way, he's done this after I've left home. How rude. <laughs> Um, he's got this massive great big house in the country and he's looking out on a bit of land that he's got for himself I have you know and um, he's gone to me it's just good luck and I said I was like are you I mean you know the stuff that we talk about the stuff that we do in the circles that we go it's not just good luck it was graft and it was effort and it was being brave and it was you know taking risks and and also he's worked you know all over the world in like Kazakhstan and he's currently in the desert in Oman and you know he took he took risks and he took you know he sacrificed a lot to create that life for himself but yet he still has this mindset of it was just good luck. It could right. all be taken away. And he wanted us to see different things and, and to go to different places. And I do feel very lucky. I think we're extremely lucky to have parents like that. 
Yeah, I think so too. So listen, you were obviously um, in your acting career. You've mentioned singing as well in there. So you, you yeah. were obviously all roundering all this lovely stuff. Uh, at what point did this start to change at any, any stage in the journey? What happened? So a few things, um, you know, I was doing acting and I was, I spent many years up until really my mid twenties where I was just doing TV acting and modeling. And I did singing when I was 18, I was signed to Sony then. And then when I became a parent, so I've got two children, Brooke and Texas. And when I became a parent, as most parents that were listening or listening would know, you know, you reassess things. And I was definitely becoming a bit of a busy fool and I was trying to make everything stay the same when it's just not the reality once you become a parent and I remember both me and my husband at the time sitting down and having a conversation where we went look we need to work smarter than this we need to take our foot off the pedal work smarter not harder and maybe we'll take a pay cut maybe we will because we we were doing all kinds of things both entrepreneurs and then we had a few years of us just being as a family and then in 2014, my husband, Ross, was diagnosed with cancer. And so when that happened, he was diagnosed with brain cancer, rare brain cancer. And when that happened, once again, I had a shift. And for me, it was, it was like, uh, I mean, I don't know how, how you would describe it, but it was not a little moment. It wasn't a gradual moment. It was a physical shift of reality where I, I just remember the shift happening where, you know, bear in mind, I've described how I was as a child where I was, and this went right up into my adulthood. If you're in the entertainment industry, you're probably a little bit mental. You are <laughs> driven beyond like what is humanly possible because you have to be, because if you're not there at that audition the next day, if you haven't rehearsed a whole script, if you haven't learned whatever you need to learn, if you aren't willing to get there, someone else will because the, the jobs are infrequent and few. And so when you're of that, so for me to have lived with that mindset from being younger than 11 up to into my mid-20s that was my mindset I was ex I've always been extremely driven and ambitious and but it was on that one thing really and only when I had kids did I expand it to seeing that I wanted to not be a skinned actor and so I I developed businesses around that or ventures I mean they weren't big business but they were things that made me money outside of acting and then when Ross was diagnosed I just remember the, the shift in my mindset where I just suddenly couldn't understand at all why I'd ever wanted to do any of that. It just had, it suddenly went from having all the meaning in the world and all the importance to just absolutely nothing. It just didn't matter. And so from that, I, that, that's how I had my transition into the world of self-development. Although it had been something I'd always done in the background so it had always been something I'd done personally mm. because if you grow up on television and uh, you believe me you better work on your mindset or you're not gonna you're not gonna succeed you're gonna find it very difficult and I was always fascinated by it I you know I, I'm 35 so you know like you it wasn't something that we grew up with it people weren't talking about affirmations and mindfulness and 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 joking I was I was kind of talking to somebody recently and I I now describe myself as a, as a teenager. I was a closet meditator. So I would secretly like do all kinds of weird woo woo stuff. I was meditating, doing affirmations and gratitudes and, and burning my negative feelings. Um, in nice. 
<laughs> yeah. What happened with that though? You say nice. If you ask my parents the story on that, it's a slightly different story. <laughs> I had a very cheap carpet in my room and um, I had a metal ball that I'd taken upstairs and I was flicking fire, like lighting the negative things and flicking them into the ball. And I made myself a little fire in the ball. Um, you know, it's fully contained in the metal ball, blew the fire out, thought no harm done. Um, but then when I picked the ball up off the carpet, it, it just melted the carpet and <laughs> just melted to the carpet. So I was no longer allowed to uh, burn my negative feelings in a ball <laughs> because it wasn't safe and it created a lot of negative energy in the house. So I was going to say, the irony <laughs> of it, yeah. So you talk about um, the fact that we didn't grow up with that. I'm a lot older than you, Holly, but we didn't grow up with that. That wasn't something that people talked about and actually the whole mental health piece is yeah. so much more prominent now than it ever That's was, isn't it? I mean, even in the last five years, it's... Yeah. it's hasn't it? It's it really huge. Has. And especially for men, which I'm delighted about, actually, because I think yeah. that's very important. Um, but without digressing too much, because we are going to come back to talking more about that kind of self-development yeah. stuff. I want to really talk about your husband. And yeah. I know some of the listeners um, will have been listening to you chatting away and then suddenly announcing to us on the podcast that your husband was diagnosed with a rare brain cancer. And yeah. it's not that you say it easily. And I have to just say this out loud because this is what I feel having heard you speak and having had conversations with you. It's not that you just throw it out there and it's easy and it's like, oh, oh you know, and it's like, a, you know, it's okay. But to us as a listener, all of a sudden we're in shock. All the listeners, unfortunately, my husband died of cancer. So he died in 2017 of brain cancer. And, and you're right. I understand that because of my, I guess, clarity of, of the way that I talk about it, 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 it can come across that maybe I'm detached from it or that there's been no process of going through grief or any of those things. And my husband had autism as well. So he was very black and white in his thinking. And I think that suits an actor because actors have no zero embarrassment factor and um, also are quite open-minded about things. So we always said it worked quite well with us because I just wasn't embarrassed by the fact he had zero filter. Um, but we had these conversations about, you know, death and, and conversations that probably a lot of people who had gone through similar things really wouldn't have. Well, I know that absolutely prepared me for the end of life. Of course, nothing prepares you fully for that. And the reality, the reality of that is and was awful. It was awful. But I, as I deal with everything, I deal with things by looking the tiger in the eye and being really honest and real about it because and, and I don't understand any other way no. because I know that in if you avoid what's happening or you try to fight the inevitable all you are going to do is cause yourself more pain and I've never at any stage you know tried to force or stop myself from going through grief or feeling things and I've cried and I've gone through all kinds of stuff and still do you know it's only two years down the line it's not it's not a stopped process 
But I've always said, I said from the very beginning, you know, if I'm, if I need, if I have a breakdown, I have a breakdown. I've, I'm perfectly entitled to, and if I don't, I don't. But I think that because of the work that I'd done previously on self-development and resilience and, and also prepped my mind. When Ross was diagnosed in 2014, we, I was, I knew how bad it was. It wasn't, it was bad. It was grade four. It was rare. It, they didn't have a clue what they were doing. And it was only, I think, truthfully, my husband's mindset, because he just did not talk about it. Wasn't into, he wasn't into cancer. He didn't talk about it. He didn't know what he was supposed to have. He didn't know the symptoms he was supposed to have because he was like, I'm just going to live my life. I shouldn't be here. He'd say that all the time. I shouldn't be here. I should be dead. If it was, a, it was 20 years ago, I'd be dead me already. So we're just not, what are we talking about it for? When people live their life in and we've all, we had always lived our lives in a very matter of fact way. We, the way we spoke to each other was very open. There was no hidden stuff. It was very matter of fact. It's not for everybody, that way of living. But for me, I don't understand any other way. You know, I, and I really check myself. And there's been times in this process of grief where I've, in fact, I actually went to see a counsellor. It was more because I felt good and I was worried that maybe I was trying to like spiritually bypass stuff and miss out things. And I didn't want to, you know, I do the work. I work with other people. I work with coaches. I do the work. I'm not trying to avoid stuff. And so I went to see somebody and honestly, I hated it. I, I didn't get much out of it. And this lady was lovely, but it takes somebody sharp to, to get on top of me with that stuff. I know my own mind. I know my own triggers. And I didn't, and we left the, you know, the coaching session, her going, you just need to stop worrying about other people's opinion of how you're dealing with grief. Yeah. Because my issue was, was that everybody was telling me, you know, you know, it's okay. But how are you and yourself? And I was like, I'm crying when I'm, it's appropriate to cry. And when I feel like crying and I'm, I'm okay. The other time grief is a personal journey and every one of us will go through it. And I will not judge anybody's grief because you do it in your own way, in your own time. And just because I can talk about it, just because I can be open doesn't mean that I don't feel sad about it. But when I was in the hospice, I vlogged from the hospice. I talked very openly about what was happening, which again, for a lot of people would seem very bizarre, but you also have to bear in mind my background. When I was going to school, I was going to a pretty rough school. It was not easy. It, you know, the, all the challenges of being a teenager. When I was on set, that was my safe space. When I was in front of a camera, that was my cathartic place to offload, to be, to be creative, to be my truest self. That, that's no different to now. So me talking in front of a camera is my way of offloading, of talking, regardless of whether that makes other people uncomfortable or they feel like it's an overshare. The flip side of that is that it's generated a huge platform in terms of people being able to have these conversations with me. Other women, other men who feel scared and lost and going through similar things have been able to watch the stuff that I've done and see themselves in it or not, or see hope in it. And that's important. I think it's, I'm so glad I, I asked you what I asked you at that point. In this conversation, I didn't feel shocked because I already knew the story. But I also understand how people feel about death and grieving. And you're absolutely right. Everything you've said is really interesting. 
some people want to prescribe how you need to grieve and that is just never going to be the case because every single one of us will do it in a different way and I think I wanted to just share something back if that's okay um, because I, I've lost my mum and my dad um, I'd say that's different to what you went through for sure but I think what was interesting was when my mum was dying Holly she wouldn't talk to me about death right, right. so this is a woman who always talked to me about everything I mean I'm not joking yeah. everything we could talk about anything wow but this was taboo okay and this was not to be talked about there was no acknowledgement she had cancer there was no acknowledgement of her prognosis which she knew she'd heard it from the doctor in the same room as all of us and I know why and and it was because as a mother she thought she needed to protect us okay and that was that was the deal but yeah. honestly, it left me absolutely mortified and it left me unable to grieve for her. It left me unable to know how she was feeling. And, yeah. and those things were really difficult for me. Now, flip that to my dad, who I sat with for four weeks in the hospice yeah. by his bed. Yeah. And we talked about nothing else but him dying. Yeah. And what I was going to do once he died, I got this bloody list from him of instructions, his funeral, he planned a funeral with me, what songs he wanted, what he wanted me to do. Um, And it was just so much easier in a sense, and it was so awful losing him, it still is, but easier that I just had this closure around knowing that he wasn't scared when he died. That's a big thing, that's such a big thing. The fear thing, the the feeling, and that gives me comfort because Ross was similar in that we, you know, he said to me a few things that he said, and one of them was, I don't regret anything and I'm happy with everything I've done. And I just think, you know, Ross was 32 when he died, two kids, he'd, he had five properties, he did, you know, so it means he provides for us as a family still, which is, you know, an unusual situation. You know, that's not a normal for a 32-year-old man. He'd, he'd worked hard at what he'd done. He had always worked for himself. He had, you know, done every... He'd, he'd lived his life every day in the way that he wanted to live it. Sometimes that had annoyed other people, of course. You know, he'd said what he thought. He'd done every... But he'd, he'd lived his life how he wanted. And I just... For me, I look and I think, do you know what? We had 10 years together. And I actually remember him saying... You know, it's not, on paper, this won't seem enough. It won't look as important. And I understood that, but we had been together pretty much every day since we met. And so it was almost like the fast track of what people do over, you know, people have got nine to five jobs. They don't see each other half the time. So we just fast tracked everything and we condensed this love and this, this, you know, this life together into a smaller space, but it was equally as important. And I just think you could live to a hundred and not have said those words that you don't regret anything and you've done everything you want to do. So that gives me comfort. And you knowing, you know, that you had, that your dad had controlled that conversation around his death. It gives you comfort to know that. And it really is important to have these conversations. And it's made me, I mean, Ross did pick some songs for his funeral and stuff. And I think the only conversation we didn't have was where do you want to die? But equally, I knew that Ross really, really had no attachment to his body or anything like that. And just would have been like, whatever's best. As human beings, we've got to get more grown up about the conversation around death. 
Yeah, we have. I agree. I agree. And I must mention here because it just brings it in beautifully. Um, beautiful Holly has also done a TEDx talk, which I sat and listened to. Now I think I'd heard her speak twice. I hadn't really met her to chat to her, which I did at the awards this year. But in between that, I watched this TEDx talk and it was just fantastic. And the reason why it was fantastic was because I connected so much with it because I just heard everything, bits that you've said in this podcast, yeah. everywhere. I'll put the link in the, in the, in the uh, text. This TEDx is really important for everyone to listen to because it basically talks about not sitting in that victim place because yeah. while you're staying there, you cannot move on and be happy. That's it. Simply put, that is it. And that is the ethos that I live and breathe. And I say even to my children, you know, of course there's cuddles and there's all that. And I always say that to people I, you know, speak to, you can, you can move out of victimhood crying. You can move scared. You can, you know, but you just don't have to sit there. We've almost lost this resilience around a lot of things. And we've kind of, we've obviously tried to get the balance of not being too hard and we don't want that either. And we want people to feel free and, and vulnerable and, and being able, you know, sensitive. You know, even with my kids, I, we've, we've had this conversation loads of times. I've never said to my kids, everyone's going to like you. I've never said everyone's going to think you're pretty or think you're amazing. I've never said everyone has to be friends with you because I want you to live a life you love. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I, and it's like, um, it's funny because my mom and dad, as I said, were so lovely. Um, but I absolutely grew up in this world uh, thinking that everybody was going to be lovely everyone was going to like me and when I left school at 16 and I went to work I, I sort of went oh my goodness there's horrible people in this world yeah exactly <laughs> like a shock to the system that's it. I mean that's I guess it's like the the balance of being a good parent you know you you want to bolster your, your child up and you want to make them tell them you think they're amazing but equally and, and I do that obviously with my kids it sounds like I'm being so harsh I love my children they're amazing people and I will tell them they're amazing but equally on the flip side I don't tell them they're amazing at everything no, and exactly. I, I say this in the nicest way but you know if my kid comes out they've made some modeling thing at school and I know that they've got more in their locker than that and I'll say mm, was that your best work <laughs> is that your best work and if they're if I mean kids aren't stupid they know when it's not their best work but equally they can then respect that when I say oh my gosh that's amazing that's incredible that's going to feel good because I'm not yeah. saying it to everything we just got to teach our kids that and then hopefully we'll have a, a stronger new generation coming up yeah, I agree. I think my Sam is now 15. So he was 15 on New Year's Day. And I've only got one. But obviously, yeah. he's a little bit older than your girls. How old are your yeah. girls now, Holly? Well, mine are eight and six, nearly, yeah. nearly seven and nine. Yeah, so he's 15 now. So we're having these amazing conversations. He's fabulous. You know, he's, I'm so lucky. But sometimes he'll say stuff and I say, yeah, but Sam, you know, it could be like this. And so actually, I'm not just paying lip service to him all the time we have really good healthy debates now and it's great because he gets to sort of see it you know i'll play devil's advocate with him so it's really healthy i totally agree um that we should have that responsibility to not be mean to our kids but you know challenge them a little bit is is a good thing i think i'm here to teach you to be a great adult 
I will support you in anything that you want to do. And even my kids, you know, got involved in one of my workshops this year. It was more for the girls because I wanted them to know that I will support whatever. If you've got an idea, I mean, my, my oldest daughter, Brooke, she saw me doing a, a masterclass for um, a business coach recently. She snuck down try and then listen to the masterclass I was doing it was all on positive mindset and um she was like I could do that and I was like yeah you could I said we'll do it then I said you you set you write it down you tell me what you're gonna do you show me your the plan of action I'll set up the payment system she, I was like you know we charge 10 pound ahead or whatever and um yeah you do it and she was like well, how many people could we get? I said, I don't know. She's totting it up in her head, you know, working out our money in that. <laughs> You've got little entrepreneurs there already, yeah. haven't you? But I think that's, you know, I, I will support them absolutely on any idea. If they're putting the effort in, they will have my full back in. Mm. But on the flip side, if they're not pushing themselves, they're not having a go at something, they're not, you know, if, if they're playing victim, they won't get, you know, they'll get, I will play devil's advocate as well. I think it's healthy for them. Yeah, so do I. So look, I could talk to you all night and I just know that um, because you're so interesting to talk to. And we've got a lot in common, actually, which is really nice. Um, but I'd like to make sure that we talk about what you're doing at the moment, which is really yeah. important. Um, and it's called the Happy Me Project. So That's right. Tell us a bit about that, Holly. So the Happy Me Project came off the back of Ross's death. So I had done some online courses and created online content before. And when Ross died, there was such, because of me talking about, because of me being an actress, Ross's dad was also a footballer as well, which created a lot of press. Um, you know, it heightened all of the press. So we, there was, you know, there was a lot. And so that my platform rose even more. And I was getting a lot of people that were watching my story and my journey and just wanting to understand how. I was dealing with it when they might not even have been in the same situation as me. They might not have been, you know, lost a partner. They might have lost a parent or they might have just been struggling to go to work every day because they hated the people they worked with. And I was getting so many messages, like unbelievable amount, just not where you can manage it in a time when I really couldn't manage it. But I genuinely care. And I can't just, you know, if I'm getting a message off someone saying I'm, in, I'm despairing, I can't cope. I can't just leave that. And um, so around that time, I just thought, you know what, I'll just do what I do and I'll create a course and it will be the very basics of what I am doing. And then I can package it up and I can put it out there and there won't be, you know, I don't have to people too much. I, you know, I'll just put it out there. It's a 30 pound course, 21 days of audios, videos, a workbook. You also get um, added into a Facebook group. So you do have access to me there, but I'm not on, you know, 24 hours on call or anything, but I'll pop in and say hi and answer questions and all of that. So I put that together with honestly zero expectation, merely to just solve a problem that there were so many messages and I didn't want to just fob people off. And so the course was very much within, in the mindset of making it easy, making it, you know, so somebody can go to work and do a little bit in the morning, a little bit at night, and it just gives them some kind of ideas. I, I guess I didn't realize there was going to be such a necessity and need for it. And at the end of that year, I decided I was ready to people again. And I decided to set up the workshops of the same name. So the workshops have now, I've now done 16 sellout dates across the UK. So Newcastle, Coventry, Manchester, Nottingham, I've doubled up on, you know, some of those places. And the ethos of the Happy Me project is not about being some eternally happy robot. It is about straight talking self-development. 
my new tagline is that self-development doesn't have to be fancy. My, my, I guess my straight talking and my, you know, just trying to make it very basic is the honest, honest truth. I want to pull away the fluff and make it as easy as possible because I really believe that we all need to implement this stuff and we're not getting taught it anywhere. I want it to be so you don't have to have a psychology degree to try and find out ways that might work for you. And that's my, has always been my thing. I am not the oracle of anything. I am not some, you know, professing to be some guru of, of fountain of all knowledge. I'm not, I'm a normal human being who has actually worked on this from being a really young kid. I am an NLP practitioner as well. So I do use some of that stuff. But actually in the course itself, I just try to keep it as straight as possible. I have a real passion for, um, for you know, teaching people about confidence and self-belief. So I'm launching the Happy Me Project Does Confidence and Self-Belief on the 1st of February. And that is going to be a real how to do the inner work, the inner core self-belief work, and then also the outer work. How do you look confident? Because it, you can't have one without the other. I mean, yes, we always will focus more on the inner self-belief and the core, you know, belief in, in yourself and the self-esteem. However, if you've got amazing core self-esteem, but your outward, you know, you present as actually very unconfident and messy and you don't stand up straight and you don't use your hands correctly or use your body language, then you're still not going to be getting the reaction that you want from the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So it has to be hand in hand. It's going to be priced at £60. It's not a big top end course. Which is, which is great value, which is great value, Holly. And the people I want to reach, I'm not trying to reach people who can already get access to this stuff. Exactly. I'm trying to reach people that, you know, mid people who, you know, people can save up for 60 pound. People yeah. can save, you people yeah. can save up for 30 pound if they need to, and, and it can still reach the right people. And, and, but then I want to give them great value. And, and I'm really excited because this will then, I'll be doing some workshops throughout the year, but they will be very much focused on confidence. And we're going to be doing some, I'm going to, be very specific with the workshops this year. So we'll be, I'll be doing something on body confidence. I will be actually looking at mum confidence. So confidence being a parent. Now, not teaching you to be a parent, for goodness sake. Because <laughs> I'm definitely not going to win that prize. But I want to teach, you know, particularly mums, the, the feedback that I've had that mums particularly, you know, we're riddled with guilt and lack of confidence in who we are and who we are as parents. And so actually that's come from the feedback from my community saying, actually, I'd like to feel confident being the mom that I am. And there's going to be a few other things, but I might actually do um, a work confidence, body language type stuff, presenting type things, because again, that's my background. So there's, it, that's going to be my focus over the next year, but a whole load of new stuff to come, including a podcast as well. I mean, just... Why not? Hey, why not? I love podcasting. I really do. It's, um, and the thing is, I do it like a conversation, which is actually why my podcasts turn out how they do. I never quite yeah. know what I'm going to get, which is just, it's wonderful, to be honest. I, do. I really do. I love it. Um, but that Happy Me project just sounds like it's really taking off and it's getting exciting and it's, and it's evolving. And isn't that what business is all about? It's just evolving so beautifully. So well done you. You're, you're just amazing. You really are. I want to just say one other thing about you because you sort of talked about, you know, I'm, I'm no expert and I haven't got this and, you know, mm. with you. I, I don't, I'm not a really highly on paper qualified person, but I've worked mm. in sales for 30 years. Yeah. So everything you get from me with regard to sales, 
I've <laughs> lived it and breathed it and it's authentic and it's what I truly believe it to be, which is where yeah. you come from. And I think that's so much more valuable to your clients and the people who work with you. I, I really agree. And I've, I, in fact, I had a conversation with my dad about a similar thing at the weekend because I was saying, you know, I haven't got a degree and I've had so many conversations with really qualified people. In fact, I work with a guy, um, we work on uh, body language and body confidence for really high end clients. So like top CEOs at Barclays and stuff. And, and it's this guy's business, actually not my work. I come and do some slots for him. And he's a very old gentleman, lovely guy. And, um, you know, he was an ex army general, very different worldview to me. Our, our paths have been very different. And he said to me, Holly, you're very intelligent. Why haven't you got a degree? <laughs> I said to him, look, I wake up every day and I do what the hell I like. And I've got money in the bank more than most for in reality. You know, I, I know my privilege. I've created a lovely life myself. I've got a hot tub, which was my working class tick in the box. I've got a jacuzzi. So that's my, I can, I can die happy now anyway. And, uh, and I was like, you know, I don't know what it's going to offer me other than pacifying other people. I read the same books that people read on those university degrees. I am very smart and it's not, I'm very comfortable with who I am like you. You know, I know my worth. I know what I'm good at. I've always been very interested in people that made their way without following the, the normal convention conventional way of doing things and the people that interested me were people that had grafted and I read a book called grit so grit is it's about um you know the difference between just being born talented or putting the work in and putting the grit in you know having the, the bounce back and all of that stuff and it's all you know they've done lots of studies on it and and basically the, the top and bottom bit is is that if you get told that you are unbelievably genius very young for some people that can be detrimental because then they sit on their levels and they don't actually do the work and they think it's all made, it's all easy. And they don't really live up to the potential that they, they thought, you know, they, they should have. Whereas the person that's, you know, given a little push or maybe he's had some hard things happen when their back's against the wall, some of those people will, will work. And I've always said that my best work happens you know they say in times of inspiration or desperation desperation my back's against the ropes i will work <laughs> i will work yeah. and i will find a way and so i've always been fascinated by that and so if any of your listeners are listening they're thinking you know i'm not this qualified i'm not that so what you know yeah, what so you, you ch change the story because yeah. i've never you know and i know sometimes and i have to be careful of this and i learned this this year actually of myself i have to be careful and i've tried to stop saying this I have tried to stop saying that I'm winging it because I was saying that. And actually that's not true. <laughs> no, I was, exactly. I was just going to say. I'm not winging it. I'm not winging it. I mean, I have, I have been winging it in the past, but you know, these days I know my worth. I know what I can do. I know what I can't. In saying that I'm actually avoiding owning the work I put in. Yeah. So it was, an, it was actually came when I was doing the NLP course last year um, it was actually something that came up on there and, I, and it was like this revelation. Oh my gosh, I keep saying I'm winging it. And actually I, that's a cop out. Yeah. That's actually, that's actually a way to keep me stuck or to like not actually own the work. Definitely. Yeah. That's probably why coaches tend to speak or have coaches during their career because they just need that other side of things, don't they? So, but honestly, Holly, it's just been so amazing chatting to you and 
I, I pretty much feel like I've talked about all the lovely things that I wanted to talk about with you. And I, I actually hope that not only are my audience now happy having listened to this podcast, <laughs> um, well, I'm positive that they will be inspired by it because you are very inspirational. Um, at times it might feel a bit like you're a very tough girl, but actually you're incredibly inspiring with it. And I think that it says an awful lot about the journey that you've had so far at such a young age. So keep doing what you're doing um, from the older lady. Um, because, uh, you know, it is great. And I do hope that we obviously meet again and we chat again and maybe even share a stage again, because obviously with your speaking, you know, know. we, I've no doubt that we will. I've no doubt that we will. And, um, it's just nice to come on podcasts like this and be able to, you know, just to have a chat about stuff. And, and I know that it will reach your amazing audience and, and hopefully, yeah, it's just, it's lovely. I love doing podcasts because I get to chat to interesting people too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what the human conversation is all about. So thank you so much for your time and for joining us. You're welcome. We are very honored. And um, so listeners, look, what a great podcast again, but you know, everyone is different. Everyone has something extra to give you as a listener i'm so so pleased at how this pans out if you want to get in touch with holly all of her links will be in the details on the podcast we will be on apple podcasts we will be on spotify we are on soundcloud and we are now on stitcher so we're getting a great reach now with the podcast what you need to do is like it subscribe tell your friends and if you want to comment we'll answer those comments because we'd love that too so thank you for joining us and we will see you next time on the human conversation ta-da for now you've just been listening to the human conversation podcast with jules white to find out more about the other work that jules does please visit her website www.liveitloveitsellit.co.uk And if you enjoyed the podcast, then please do leave a rating and review on the platform you use to enjoy her show. Thanks for listening and see you next time.